Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. We are now in our God is Able Sermon Series. In this life, it is so easy for us to settle for the ordinary. We wake up and typically have the same routine every single day. Yet our God created us to live an extraordinary life. There is no one in the world exactly like you, and God wants you to reach your full potential. This involves us growing deeper and deeper into Christ while following Him every day. His plans for us are immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. So let's trust Jesus and live out our extraordinary lives. Let's listen in. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here today. So my name is Nick Allen, and I get the privilege of being the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills, and it's a joy to have you here. We're in week three uh, of a series that we transitioned into at the start of school, kind of the end of summer, and it's all about the idea of God being able. I'll tell you a story. When I was a kid um, growing up in the kind of southeast as we did, um, my parents would pick like one day every summer um, to take us to an amusement park. And lots of times it ended up being Carowinds um, in, in Charlotte. It's on the North and South Carolina border. Um, and that's, we had a ton of fun there and we loved it. But when I was really little, we would go to a place called Six Flags. And apparently there are more states that have a Six Flags. And the one that we went to was in Atlanta, Georgia. And so we would go to Six Flags. And as we would get taller, we, my sister and I would run to stand up against the little measuring sticks that they provide at every ride. All amusement parks have them to see if you're taller enough to ride this ride and I can remember very distinctly like inching my way forward like hoping that I was going to hit the measuring stick and if I was just underneath it hoping that the teenage operator that they had my mercy why in the world did they let that happen it doesn't doesn't feel very safe when you say it that way that the teenage operator that was watching and manning this ride would let me pass through and when it got to be a family of four where we were all tall enough where my sister measured high enough as well she had one disclaimer before we would get on any roller coaster particularly the ones that would go um, in a loop where you would be upside down it's that she would ride it on one condition that she got to be in the cart next to my dad she did not want to ride with me which I understand I didn't want to ride with her either. She also did not want to ride with my mother because somehow or another she believed, like fully believed as a little kid, that if something were to go wrong on that ride and she were to, I don't know, from way up high, upside down, start to slide out, he would go, go gadget arms, reach out, grab her, put her back in the cart, and she would magically be safe because as a little kid, you kind of all have that supposition that your parents can do anything. And then you grow up and you realize that the things that you may have believed as a little kid about what your parents could accomplish are not necessarily quite true. Side note to my daughters, if we were upside down on a roller coaster and you started to slide out, I would go go gadget arms and save your life. (laughs) Daddy can. Okay. 
the theme verse for this series is not just for the series. It's really for the whole life of Rolling Hills. We turned 20 years old this year as a church, and we've been celebrating big time since January. And it's found in the book of Ephesians. We call it the immeasurably more passage of Scripture because that's what it talks about. And then for all 20 years, that's what we've prayed. We prayed that God would do more than what we, we've come up with a long list of asks as Rolling Hills Community Church, and we have prayed big prayers for 20 years at all of our campuses, really to fuel campuses that we didn't know would get off the ground and have a place to meet. We have prayed immeasurably more prayers, but always we've asked that God would do more than the things that we can even ask for. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, now to him, that's where we focus the first week's message. It's all about him. That's where our attention goes. That's who we're trusting him. Why? Because he's able. That's what we talked about last week, the idea that he's able to do what? To do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And I have a big imagination, but God is able to do more than I ask or imagine, more than you ask or imagine, according to what? His power. That's at work where? Within us. And so what we say in response to a God, who is that able and who is that powerful to do far more than we can ask or imagine, we say to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Apostle Paul was writing this thousands of years ago, and here we are included in the canon of Scripture, and we didn't even realize it. This is us, all the generations, the one that got us to this point where we are today, and the ones that will take us down the road forever and ever. Amen. That's where we're focused, and every week we've gotten to take a different story from Scripture. Last week we kicked it in the Old Testament for a while with Joshua praying a prayer that God would make the sun stand still in the sky so that he could fight for another day, and now we land in John chapter 2. It's in the Gospels. If you want to turn your physical Bible there, I did that beforehand, or you want to grab your phone and follow along in Church Center app with the message that we're doing today, whatever Bible you want to follow along with, here we are in John chapter 2. It's a familiar miracle of Jesus. In fact, it's his first recorded one in the scriptures. It says this, on the third day, A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And this can be, in our English translations, a little misleading because what we don't understand is that weddings didn't just last a day. They didn't just last a whole day. How many of you guys have been invited to be in your brother or your bro's wedding and you realize, oh, you picked a July date. I'm so thrilled to come and stand for eight hours in a tuxedo that does not breathe. This is awesome. Like, these weddings didn't just last one day. They were like a week-long festival, a whole carnival of celebrations that are happening. So on the third day of this particular wedding that was taking place at Cana in Galilee, Jesus's mother was there. We know it's Mary. It's the story of Christmas. We learn about this girl who was told that she was going to bear the Christ child. She did. Here she is at a wedding later on in life. And Jesus, adult Jesus, and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And you want to know who the guys are at this point? If you go back one chapter in John, it's the calling of the first disciples. And every one of the gospels gives us a different picture of how they're called and why they're called. And we get a full understanding when you put them all together. But at this point, he's probably got five disciples. The first one is Andrew. He was previously one of the disciples of John. And in John chapter one, we learn how Andrew and another guy that they don't give the name of, a lot of scholars assume that it's John himself because he's the one writing the book, that Andrew and John came and followed Jesus. Andrew told his brother Simon, who Jesus renamed Peter. And then they go and pick up this guy, Philip, who's from their same hometown. And then Philip tells a guy named Nathaniel. And so five disciples, you can imagine at this moment, are with Jesus at this wedding. It says in verse three, when the wine was gone, whew, that's not shaping up to be a very good wedding here. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. 
Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. We'll get to that in a moment because this is not a disrespectful reply from Jesus. He says, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And this is how we know this, because that word gallon is is a Greek word, and it's matretas, and it means roughly between 9 and 10 gallons. So each one of these didn't just hold one matretas, would have made it a 10 gallon jar. It held 20 to 30 gallons. It's two to three matretas. And so somewhere or another, each one of these six stone jars all by themselves held 20 to 30 gallons of liquid. And I brought an illustration today because I want you to see what this is. Um, But I couldn't find one big enough because this is a five gallon bucket from home. This message is not sponsored by Home Depot. Um, and it's not about how doers get more done because that's, mm, unless you go to the book of James, bad theology. So I've got this one five, it's empty too. So it makes it really, if it was heavy, I don't know that I would be lifting it in front of you because that would be shameful. So I brought a few more and there are people that are going to help me. So oh, awesome. Thank you guys. So we've got these buckets. If you're listening to this in an audio, I'm holding five gallon orange buckets from the Home Depot, which this message is not sponsored by. And... I want you to see, so five times six, help me with the math here. This is 30 gallons. Y'all, one of those six stone jars held 30. They made them big back in the Bible. I can't imagine. And I'm also afraid that this might be a disaster in the middle of the message. So I'm going to go ahead and take this down. Um, But I want you to see the visual because it just wasn't one stone jar, maybe somewhere around this size, that held between 20 and 30 gallons. It was six of them. So I brought out some more friends in buckets. No, I didn't. That would be like a wall of buckets. (laughs) You are going to have to imagine, and the Lord is going to have to do more than you ask or imagine in this moment, because I need you to visualize with me um, a lot of these. I got to do math again. Six times six. I need you to imagine 36 orange buckets full of what would be a liquid, because that's the size container that we're talking about. Nearby stood six this is one of them, stone jars, the kind that the Jews used for ceremonial washing, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons. Now, if you do the math on that, if each one of these stone jars held between 20 and 30 gallons, and there were six of you've got 120 to 180 gallons of liquid. That is massive. And Jesus said to the servants, you know, the ones that Mary had just said, do what he tells you. Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So now it's not 20 to 30. It's 30 full gallons of water in each one of these containers. And we're going to have to talk a little bit about biblical people and their muscles. Because how in the world they would have carried six stone. These are plastic. I don't know if you have one of these at your house. But stone, probably made of limestone, water. And you're filling. How many servants did it take? I have no idea. Verse 8, he told them. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, 
and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. You know why. But you have saved the best. We're three days in. You saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? Father, may we see the glory of your Son and believe. Through the text, through your Spirit, through your power, may we be a people who see and believe. Amen. Right out of the gate, uh, we can come up with kind of one point, and this is the part of the message where I just go ahead and tell you, if you need to nod off or stop paying attention after this, that, like this is the part that we want nobody to forget. It's the thing that we want you to hang on and, and remember and, and remind yourself of throughout the week. Maybe remind the people on your row, the people that you came with, or somebody else that you know, that this is what matters in this passage of Scripture. He can do more because he is more. Like the reason he can do more than what we ask or imagine is because he is far more than anything that we can ask or imagine. He is always more. When Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of many signs that would reveal his glory. Psychologically in this moment, I'm thinking, okay, there's, there's probably some times in my life where I didn't believe that he could do more. And so the question begs is, did I forget that he is more? Like maybe the reason why someone doesn't believe that God can do more is because they don't believe that he, he is more. Maybe the reason they don't believe that he is more is because they don't necessarily know who he is. This is a gospel moment for us. This is the moment where we acknowledge that God alone on high is the creator of the whole universe, that he was here by himself for however long he was here by himself, didn't need the world that he created, didn't need it to function in any sort of way, yet for his own glory created the planet. And they've got this whole six-day narrative in Genesis that says this is how he created the world, and there were humans that he put in it, and humans that fell due to a sin nature and a temptation that they succumbed to, where they wanted to be like God. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they wanted to be something different than what God had created them to be and the enemy entered in and there was a temptation and they sinned and they fell and it was dangerous and yet God in his love provided he chose a family and then he chose a nation and then he offered to that nation his own son to which they rejected that made him available to all nations us included that somehow at the name of Jesus every like person on earth and under the earth and everybody like every tongue might confess that he alone is Lord we confess that he came to this earth because of the love that God has for us that he died on a cross and that he came back to life on the third day here we are on a third day wedding I wonder if there's a connecting point He rose so that we might have life and an abundant one that we can't even imagine the fullness of. That's what he desires to give us, that love in spite of sin. He offered sacrifice and he offered forgiveness. And that's the power of the God that we believe in. And we know that he can do more because he he is more. And the meaning behind any of these miracles that's in your notes this morning, the meaning behind this miracle, the meaning behind all the other miracles, the meaning is always the message. Like the reason that he did the things that he did is not because they needed wine. 
The reason that he did the things that he did is not because somebody needed to see. It's not because somebody needed to walk. It's not because somebody was being lowered down on a mat in front of him so that he could heal. Like, the reason that he did the things that he did is so that people would believe, not only in the God who sent him, but believe in him for salvation. The message has always been the meaning of the miracles. Because his disciples saw what had happened that day, and they knew the behind the scenes of what was going on when there was no wine, the Bible says that they believed in him. So if you don't take anything else away today, or anything else really away from this whole series, it's that God did the things that he did so that we might believe in the son that he sent. And the son that he sent is able to do more because he is more. And if we put Jesus on this level of a shelf in our home, he's going to be able to do this level of things in our lives. And so what we want to acknowledge is that he can do more because he is more than we ever had time to imagine. There's a whole bunch of other truths that you can take from this text. They're outlined for you. There's some fill-in-the-blanks that you can take along in your worship guide or on your mobile app this morning. First is this. It's a question. Who or what is your default? When, when something's not going right, when you've forgotten the thing that you, like, like these people at the end of the day, when you sit back and think about it, if they were anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons short, they did not plan very well. So in those moments when you don't plan very well, in those moments when you're not prepared for whatever life presents to you, in those moments when you fail, in those moments when things aren't going well, in those moments when life and circumstance present a challenge that you did not see coming, who or what is your default? The answer should be clear. Jesus should always be our first and best resort. When the wine was gone, Jesus, his mother, said to him, we don't know that she tried 10 other things first, but the Bible lists this one, so we're going to say that this is the first thing that she did. When the wine was gone, Jesus, his mother, said to him, they have no more wine. We cannot look at his response and assume disrespect, although when I hear it, reading out loud, I conjure my Samuel L. Jackson voice, and I'm like, woman, why are you trying to involve me? And that's not it at all. Like, we're not saying that Jesus is disrespecting his mother in this moment. But we're saying that for us, the go-to ought to always be prayer. That it should be our first, and we should always trust it to be our very best response. A confession of the moment, and I feel like you're with me. You can nod your head if you agree. There are moments when I tell somebody that I'm going to pray for them, and I wish I could do more. Moments when I almost feel bad uttering the words because it sounds, it sounds trite. It sounds like, oh, that's just what Christians are supposed to say. Oh, it sounds like, oh, let's just take Christians out and substitute Southerners. Like, it's just what we do. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. Or you look at somebody and you realize how high the odds are stacked against them and how difficult the situation is that they're walking in and how problematic it seems and how challenging it is. And you say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. And you almost say it with that little tone at the end that says, I feel bad about praying for you because I wish I could do more for you. That's totally denying the power of prayer. We got six stone jars filled to the brim with more than 120 gallons, probably closer to 180. God can do more because he is more. And when we pray, that's not just the thing that we offer 
as a consolation prize because we're not doing anything else. Prayer is more. And if we don't know that prayer is more, then that means we don't know that God is more. And if we don't know that God is more, maybe we don't know God. Prayer should be our first and our very best response to whatever's going on in the world, whatever's going on in our lives, whatever's going on in the lives of other people. And obedience ought to always be our primary posture. Like the way that we approach God ought to be prayer, and the way that we respond to God ought to be obedience. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. He's like, woman, I should say that different, woman, like let's say it in a nice way, Jesus, okay, woman, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. Doesn't even hear the words. She looks straight up at the servants, do whatever he says, and I wish that that was my posture on most days. I wish that that was kind of the mantra that lived over my life. Do what he says. This particular miracle may have been Jesus's very first miracle. It may have been the from now on miracle when people are starting to believe and see and recognize his glory, but his mama already knew. And I don't know how and what context she already knew because we get very little information about Jesus's upbringing past the whole Christmas story and one incident when he was just a little kid in the temple. But what we can assume is that something had continually been revealed to her about Jesus during all those years raising Jesus. It was evidence of a prophetic fulfillment of what she was given about Jesus. Somehow mama knew, y'all do what he says, because I'm going to solve this problem, and the way I'm going to solve this problem, the way I'm going to address this challenge is my son is going to take care of it. And you don't, I don't get to say that because that would be weird. We're never going to call Jesus our son, but the reason that we get to address the problem, the reason that we get to come to the problem, the reason that we get to confront any problem is because my Savior's going to do it. He is more. Therefore, he can do more. Mama knew. What's our default? Like, what's the, what's the, who's the first person that you run to or the first method that you try? Is it prayer first? It's an indication of where our allegiance is, where our worship is, where our heart is. Is it prayer first? Are we going to Jesus first? Are we committing ourselves to be obedient to him first? And according to the text, we're drawing things out. We're understanding what they mean. It's, we, we never, ever want to miss what's massive. What's massive in this story is not just the power of God. We're just going to go base level math. What's massive in this story is those stone jars, the six stone water jars. We've talked about how big they are. It's like this right here, tiny little display of five-gallon buckets from Home Depot multiplied at times six. There's six jars this big holding this potential amount, but we didn't mention what the jars are for. They're ceremonially cleansing ritual jars. You see, the Old Testament prescribed for the Jews that they would, they would wash their hands in a ritual way with, with, like, with pure water before they performed temple duties. And they would also cleanse themselves if they had ever been marked as impure because of anything like um, childbirth or coming in contact with a dead body. Like there was a list of things that made you impure, like maybe a disease that you had, but now you've been cured. Like there was a, there was a list of things that if you had been made impure, you would go and wash yourselves ceremonially and present yourselves in front of the priest who also regularly washed themselves ceremonially because they performed temple duties. Well, a thousand years later, the Pharisees had come along and they said, hey, we're going to expand to this. God said this, but what he really meant is you're going to wash yourself in a ceremonial way every time you eat. And Jesus' disciples in another passage of scripture, they didn't wash themselves in that way. And so the Pharisees got real mad that they weren't following their law as opposed to what God's law says. It was a whole big deal. That's what these jars were for. They were for ceremonial washing rituals. 
either after you had been made impure or unclean, or you needed to wash yourselves before eating, which is a really good idea, by the way. We make our kids do it. Y'all should do it. Like, wash your hands. It's, it's good for you. That's what these jars were for. And if you recognize that they're not just ordinary hand-washing jars, but they're ceremonially clean hand-washing jars, these were to present yourselves clean before God. These were forgiveness jars. And Jesus was about to do a miracle inside of the forgiveness jars. I'm going to pause and let you make a connection in your mind. (laughs) Something's about to happen, and it's tied to being ceremonially clean and pure and forgiven before God. We're not going to miss what's massive about this story, but we're also not going to ignore what is even more important. Because the book of Joel, anybody who knew prophecies in this day, says in verse 18 of chapter 3, In that day the mountains will drip with new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. This isn't just a miracle to make sure that the people have wine. And it doesn't just happen to be set in the most nearby jar that would hold that amount of liquid, which were the ceremonially cleansing jars that you put water in, that you cleaned yourself, and that you offered. Like, it was a reason for it. And the reason for it is to remind people of a prophecy in this moment that God said in the day. What day? In the day that the Savior comes. In the day that I restore the nation. In the day that I provide the hope of the Messiah that you've been longing for. In that day, the land and the mountains are going to flow with wine. Jesus is saying to anybody who knows, and at this point only the disciples, and as we'll see, the servants are in the know. He's saying to the people who knew, I'm that God. I'm the one who can do immeasurably more. I'm the one who is immeasurably more. Miracle was always in the message. Make no mistake that this is a message about forgiveness. This is a message about healing. This is a message about blessing where wine flows from a mountain. A hill flows with milk. Everything runs with water because there's a fountain and the Lord provided it. This is a miracle of provision. And not just the things we need on earth, but the things we need in eternity. And the ones who see it, this is in your notes, I can't forget this part. The ones who see it are the ones who serve. Jesus told the servants, hey, go ahead and draw some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And he did, and he took a sip, and he was like, whoa, this is awesome. And he gets to the bridegroom, and he's like, whoa, you, most people give the good wine first, and then once people have had a lot of that and something transpires in their life and in their ability to be able to make wise decisions, then we just bring out the rest of the stuff. But you guys, you did something different. You saved the best for last. And the reason why I said this is because he did not realize where it had come from. But the servants knew. The ones who drew the water, they knew. I'm going to say something, and it's kind of a side note. Sometimes I like to get in a whole different column when I preach a message because, hey, here's the bulk of the message about the miracle that Jesus did, and here's a, here's a side note for us. Guess who knows here? The ones who serve. Guess who get to see Jesus in a, in a whole different way? The ones who serve. I do like attendance. 
It's fun when the room is full. We are real glad that you come here. And we count every Sunday morning. We know how many people come here this Sunday. We know how many people came here last Sunday. We know how many people come here next Sunday. We know how many people are up in the kindergarten, first and second grade room upstairs. We know how many third through fifth graders we have at this hour and the next one too. Like, like we know how many people attend. But there is next level ability to see Jesus, to experience his glory, to understand who he is and how he works when you serve. That's why we call it a next step on our website. It's a spiritual growth step in your life to find a place in your local church where you're not just attending but serving. And here's all the incentive anyone ever needs because you see God work in a whole different way than just the way you otherwise would. Coming in here, singing, sitting, filling in some blanks, high-fiving a few friends and going home. You see it better when you serve. There's something about this transitioning back to the text, immeasurably more life. Because when God does something immeasurably more in our life, immeasurably more than anything that we can ask or imagine, it fully changes the trajectory of our lives. And we don't even know necessarily how. The guy had already said, hey, everybody brings out the cheap stuff last and you save the best. This is a whole big deal because apparently the running out of wine at a wedding like this was way more maddening than anything that you and I can imagine today. First of all, they didn't just have a Kroger down the street that... You could present your driver's license to making sure that you're of age and go buy more wine if you started to run out of the party that you had. Socially, this was a complete and total disgrace to not provide adequately in hospitality for your guests. Legally, in the ancient Near East, legally, they could have been sued for not providing proper recreation for the people who were coming to the wedding that week. They could have been sued somehow or another. This, running out of wine at a big reception, could have been grounds for a divorce. Something about their customs, which seems really odd to me, could have resulted in the bridegroom, the groom, this was your job, buddy, and his whole family not only being disgraced in the community, but even sued legally. And then spiritually, The Jews equated that idea of free-flowing wine at a party with with free-flowing wine in the book of Joel. It was a metaphor for blessing. And so you sit back and you think, is there a moment when the bridegroom and the bride would have had like a panic moment? We ran out of wine. Jesus' mom comes and says, they're out of wine. Maybe it's because they wouldn't have experienced all the level of perceived blessings as a couple that they thought they would experience, that they were asking for. And Jesus protected this family from all of that, and they didn't even know. How many things are you protecting me for, and I don't even know it? Maybe we ought to include that in our blanket prayer life. Just thanking God. Like, I'm going to give a long list of things that I'm thanking God for this week. And maybe as an addendum to the end of that, hey, thank you for working in ways that I just don't even see. Thank you for protecting me from problems that I didn't have to endure. Thank you for walking with me in challenges that I did not have any 
awareness of. Because God's doing some things that we get to see what a blessing that is, but he is working behind the scenes in ways that we may never know. And above all else, we're never going to forget that God's working, but the real miracle is in the message. If you go back to the pretty precise numbers that, that John gives in this text, the, the six jars with two or three matretas each, it's six multiplied by two is 12, multiplied times three is 18. You start to see, okay, there's some numbers in Scripture that recur over and over and over again. They had some kind of power. They had some sort of extra meaning in first century Judaism. There was an ancient practice. It's more associated now with Jewish mysticism, and it went wild, and it's gone far further than biblical scholarship would allow. But in Hebrew, it's called gemarsha. In, in Greek, it's a different word. It's where we get the word geometry. And so somehow or another, there's this understanding that each letter in the Hebrew alphabet had a number. And if you take the number 18, and you put those in order and you add them all together, it gives you the word life. So somehow or another, this isn't just a miracle where they're saving face. This isn't just a miracle where he's providing a way out from any potential legal trouble in the future. This isn't just a miracle of a metaphor where God's saying, hey, let the blessings flow. It's a, it's a, it's a miracle that's modeled after the idea that Jesus didn't just come to give us wine. He came to give us life. And this whole thing signals the abundant life that's only found in Jesus. Some people want the abundant life found in Jesus, all about the blessing, bring on the bounty, the love, the forgiveness, the peace, but they ignore the abundant life that comes through Jesus and the sacrifice and the way of the cross, declaring that he is one and only Messiah, that it's his death, his resurrection that comes and offers us the forgiveness of our sins. There's a whole system of deconstruction out there in the world that wants all of the character and the nature and the blessing of Jesus, but none of the promise and none of the exclusivity and none of the idea of Jesus being a Savior who came to save us from our sins. And in order to be saved from our sins, we have to recognize that we are sinners. In order to recognize what we're sinners, we have to understand that there's a standard that we somehow as people missed, and what we need is life. And it only comes through him. And when it comes through him, there's an abundance from him. The miracle of the water into 180 gallons of wine, that better have been a whole lot of people. It's an abundance. And that's the kind of life that we're called to live, but only when we believe. The disciples saw what he did, and they believed in him. You skip over a couple of chapters in the book of John, chapter 4, he's speaking with a Samaritan woman. There's this, this image of water and wine that flows through Scripture. And he tells her, hey, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't have asked me for a drink. You would have asked me for living water. Jesus says, I am the living water. And then you fast forward again, and you're in the book of Matthew, and he's, he's, he's been tried, and he's going to be tried. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified, and he's celebrating a, a, a past supper with his disciples. It's 
It's imaging the past of what God had done in Israel in the book of Exodus. And he, he takes the cup and he gave thanks. That's the Eucharist. And he says to them, drink from it, all of you. And he didn't say, this is my wine. And that would have been abundance. And that would have been awesome. He says, this is my blood. And it's of a new covenant. And it's being poured out in abundance for the forgiveness of sins. And I hope that the disciples in that moment, as they took a sip, the image in their mind was, oh yeah, remember that time he made so much wine? It's because there is so much forgiveness. There's not a lack of it. You who are called by his name and called to know the gospel story of Jesus, once you believe, there's not a lack of forgiveness. In John chapter 19, he's hanging on a cross. The soldier came and pierced his side. What came out? Blood. Oh, it's the wine the abundance and water it's how we live we need this we need all of this to live an abundant life we need all of Jesus believing and walking and trusting in him to live and it was poured out in abundance for us there's no shortage of forgiveness for us he's able to forgive us he's able to cleanse us he's able to give renewed life to us if you're grieving and weeping he's an abundant more than enough if you're suffering and struggling he's an abundant more than enough if you're sinning and hiding he's an abundant more than enough if you're barely awake and moving he's an abundant more than enough he's so much more and he gives us a picture of how much more he is for us it's it's more than we can ask or or even imagine and so what's our response to go to him first to tell him that we trust him and, and to tell him that we're willing to obey him we're going to close out this morning in a in a time of prayer and maybe for you if this is not weird if this is not something like Maybe you just want to kneel. Maybe you want to take a posture of prayer this morning. I mean, we're already sitting. I'm going to join you in, in, a, in a place of sitting before God and saying, okay, I, I need you. Whether it's kneeling, whether it's sitting, whether it's standing, whether it's arms raised or head bowed, we want to go to the great God of this universe and tell him that he's more than enough. He's more than what we can ask for or imagine. He's, he's more than what we thought he was last year. He's more than what we even understood this morning. He can do more because he is more. And every miracle we read about is always underscoring a message that we need. He's Savior. He's Messiah. He's everything. And so God, we tell you today that we trust you. And I say that as a blanket prayer this morning, even for the person in this room who does not believe today. Even for the person who believes, but it's only a little bit because the problems are way too big. Father, we ask that today you would reveal yourself to us the way that you did then. We don't need buckets full of wine. Um, we need an outpouring of your spirit to tell us that you're real, to show us that you're enough, and to remind us 
time and time again that you're a God who can be consulted. You're a God who can be trusted. You're a God who can be relied on. Would you do in us today something, God, that we've, we've even not asked for? Maybe we did ask for it when we came in this morning. We asked and, and hoped that you would show up in an amazing way, hoped that you would provide in an amazing way, hoped that you would reveal yourself. And maybe we came in expectant this morning, but my hunch is that we came in going through the motions this morning. So can you do something in our hearts right now that's more than what we asked for when we came in? Challenge us, chasten us, comfort us, call to us, empower us, equip us. Change the trajectory of us because of Jesus. It's in his name and only his name. To him that we pray, to him that we run, to him that we go, to him alone that we trust. And we're going to believe that it's his power that's at work in the church and it's his power that's at work in the world. So that we can know how big you are and how much you love us. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.